Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. I'm your host. And today we are going to continue in season five, picking up where we left off. We are in the Sermon on the Mount, and we had just gotten done talking about salt and light. And so the previous episode talked about these two things and different aspects of them, covered some other relevant verses, that kind of thing. And so today I want to get into the idea of the combination of salt and light, because there are a lot of other things that are not just individualistic to each one of these concepts, but when you bring the concepts together there is a lot more there. And so that's what I want to get into today. So to get deeper into the concepts of salt and light, it's beneficial to look at their interplay together. So to do so, the general symbol of light will be shifted for the most part to fire, which was the source of virtually all light in those days and would have been synonymous really in this context. When people think of light, at least when people thought of light in this day and age, fire just goes with it. I mean, aside from the sun, which technically is fire as well, uh, all light just came from fire. And the examples that are given here with a lamp and these kinds of things, uh, that comes from fire. So light and fire, they are in a lot of ways synonymous here. Light is simply the effect of fire on the surrounding area, typically amplified by the vessel or device that it was used in conjunction with. Our light is likewise the effect of the fire of the Spirit, another analogy that's often used with the Spirit, on the surrounding world amplified through our lives and actions that are used in conjunction with God. So in both cases, the fire is the light, in the darkness. Since Yeshua used the analogy of fire and the spirit many, many, many times, and he uses the analogies of fire and light many, many times, uh, that is just something that flows very well, very naturally, and really fit in the context of what he was teaching at the time. Now, the opposite of fire, water, also comes into play often in these analogies, as well as in later parables and lessons from Yeshua. And so we are going to uh, bring in the idea of water as well. And again, we've talked about water because we've talked about the direct method of gathering salt in the last episode. And um, with that, the evaporation method is just as useful for our growing understanding of this interplay together. So in this method, there is the simple formula of salt equals water plus fire. So basically, you have the salt water, you evaporate the water, and what you're left with is salt. And what do you evaporate water with? Well, heat, fire, these kinds of things. And yes, they all play together. And uh, God's judgment on the wicked is done through both water and fire, the flood and the final destruction. And Yeshua talks about both of these things, and uh, that is how God's judgment is revealed onto people. It also began with water and is replaced by fire. We who are bonded to God are what remains. We are the salt. So again, salt equals water plus fire. And uh, begins with water, ends with fire. We are the in-between. All of these things do tie together very well. We have been washed clean through the waters of baptism and are purified through the fire of the Spirit. And again, what's left? Salt, because we are to be the salt. 
what started with water was put through the crucible of fire. The water played its role, and once we were clean, the fire had its role to play in our sanctification as well. We are now the true salt with full saltiness. We are what remains. Water is a cleansing agent, and fire is a purifier. Both are paired together and applied to the human to create the salt that Yeshua refers to. Now, another form of salt that would have resonated within the cultural context of this teaching is salt plates. Salt plates were used inside earthen kilns or ovens, and therefore the reference to the salt of the earth would have been very applicable. Often animal dung, typically donkey, camel, or cow dung mixed with chaff, would be used as fuel for these ovens, but it needed a catalyst to catch fire. This is the role of the salt plates. The salt plates would remain and be reused, but over time, through chemical reaction, the plates would lose their saltiness and no longer be able to perform their role as a catalyst for the fire. The Hebrew word eres, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, E-R-E-S, is the word commonly used to refer to the earth, as in the land that we live on. However, in a few locations, this word is likely referring to, whether solely or as a dual meaning, earthen ovens. And um, it is a word that has been used in literature for earthen ovens as well in Hebrew. Um, But uh, biblically, that is not quite as clear. But as I point that out, and I'll read through a few examples here, um, I think you might be able to see how this works. So the first one is Psalms chapter 12, verse 6. The words of Adonai are pure words, silver in a melting pot set in the earth, refined and purified seven times over. So again, yes, you've got the metaphor of a silver um, of silver in a melting pot set in the earth, and that could be the literal earth that deep down in the earth there are fires, even though they didn't really know a whole lot about that back then. Um, you do have heat inside the earth, but uh, probably a more apt reference here would have been to an earthen oven that they used very commonly in those times, and that would be where you would put a melting pot. Um, Well, technically, you would put one in a smelter and that kind of thing, but um, the analogy here does make a lot of sense to putting a pot in a fire in an oven. Uh, That makes a lot of sense. Uh, The next one would be Job chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. There are mines for silver and places where gold is refined. Iron is extracted from the earth, and copper is smelted from ore. Miners conquer the darkness and dig as far as they can can, to the ore in gloom and deep darkness. Where there where no one lives, they break open a shaft. The feet passing over are oblivious to them. Far from people suspended in space, they swing to and fro. While the earth is peacefully yielding bread... Underneath, it is being convulsed as if by fire. Its rocks have veins of sapphire, and there are flecks of gold. So again, that last part. While the earth, and again, it's that same word for earth, is peacefully yielding bread. Underneath, it is being convulsed as if by fire. So you get the reference to fire as well within the earth. And again, that is a meaning. And you could say that the earth is yielding bread in the sense of crops grow, wheat grows on the earth, in the land, and then you harvest that and make bread with it. Um, you could also say that a earthen oven is making bread. Um, and that's another thing that could definitely make sense there. And um, yeah. 
So the last one would be Luke chapter 12, verse 49. I have come to set fire to the earth. Oh, how I wish it were already kindled. And so, um, yes, and this is another one where this is a reference to the earth as a whole, the planet, um, in the context of what is being said there. Uh, but also you get that imagery of of an oven, of uh, a fire within an oven, uh, one that you would kindle and you would create heat and you would cook something or burn something in. Um, yeah. So in Psalms 12, the reference is to smelting silver in a pot, which would have likely been done in an earthen kiln. In Job 28, verse 1, there's a distinction made between where metals are mined and where they are refined. This is elaborated on in verse 2 by clarifying that it is extracted from the earth, but then is smelted elsewhere. This is the difference from the Psalms passage, where it is specifically referencing where the melting pot was placed to refine and purify. This would be the oven, not the land. In Job 28.5, it mentions that the earth yields bread, which may be taken to say that the earth produces the grain and ingredients for bread, or more directly, that out of the earthen oven comes the bread. This latter meaning fits better with the metaphor of contrasting to the fire-like convulsions of the depths of the earth. In one case, the bread is made from ingredients harvested from the top layer on the earth and is cooked in the earthen oven with fire. The other case speaks of the depths of the earth from which comes precious stones and other mysterious wonders. Here there are happenings that are similar to the surface and the furnace, where items of value are produced and created, but this is done through mysterious means under the control of God, not man. Our ovens, our ovens produce bread, which is good for eating and general sustenance, but God's ovens within the depths of the earth produce items of much greater value and mystery. While not directly relevant, a few verses later explain that the principle being exposed is that true wisdom comes from God and cannot be attained by man alone. The contrast between the ovens of man and the ovens of God now become even more linked to the salt of the earth, since salt was often used as a symbol for wisdom in Hebrew culture. Therefore, we use physical salt as a catalyst in our ovens, but God is the source of spiritual salt, wisdom, that is far beyond our understanding and is shown by what his ovens produce and the mysteries of the depths. The Luke passage that I referenced now holds meaning beyond the first layer of common interpretation of Yeshua coming to bring the fire of judgment. He, if he has come to set fire to the earthen oven, then there is more depth here. Salt plates are needed to kindle this fire, and he's uh, saying, if only the fire was already kindled, and his followers are this salt. He has truly come to light these ovens, as is shown by saying that his followers are salt, and the spirit he sends after he leaves is the fire. He both forms and readies the catalyst as well as sends the fire. So again, that is starting that fire in the oven with the salt and the fire of his spirit in the same metaphor. What is burned up is the dung and chaff, which symbolize the final judgment. And he does use the analogies of chaff in judgment talk later on, which we'll get to one day. 
And so uh, all of this does make a lot more sense when you factor in some of these other analogies and metaphors in the Hebrew culture and other things that were um, that salt and fire and water and all of these things get used for and factor them all together. Um, it really brings more layers of understanding to it. And so that definitely does go along very well with uh, talking about the earthen oven and all of the ways that's used with the fire and the salt and these kinds of things. Um, It all makes sense. So in the next scripture that I'm about to read, notice the references to water, then fire, then wisdom. And again, fire, light, wisdom, salt, water, the opposite, and the way that you get the salt from the salt water these kinds of things. So again, it's these same uh, principles, it's these same elements, these same things, and it's pulling out very similar, if not the same principles that we are getting in these verses about being salt and being light. So this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As for me, brothers, I couldn't talk to you as spiritual people, but as worldly people, as babies, so far as experience with the Messiah is concerned. I gave you milk, not solid food, because you are not ready for it. But you aren't ready for it now either, for you are still worldly. Isn't it obvious from all the jealousy and quarreling among you that you are worldly and living by merely human standards? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, aren't you being merely human? After all, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to trust. Indeed, it was the Lord who brought you to trust through one of us or through another. I planted the seed and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. So neither the planter nor the waterer is anything, only God who makes things grow. The planter and the waterer are the same. However, each will be rewarded according to his work. For we are God's co-workers, you are God's field, God's building. Using the grace God gave me, I laid a foundation, like a skilled master builder, and another man is building on it. But let each one be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Yeshua the Messiah. Some will use gold, silver, or precious stones in building on this foundation, while others will use wood, grass, or straw. But each one's work will be shown for what it is. The day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If the work someone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If it is burned up, he will have to bear the loss. He will still escape with his life, but it will be like escaping through a fire. Don't you know that you are people that you people are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. So if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you yourselves are that temple. Let no one fool himself. If someone among you thinks he is wise by the world's standards, let him become foolish so that he may become really wise. For the wisdom of this world is nonsense as far as God is concerned, inasmuch as the Tanakh says he traps the wise in their own cleverness. And again, Adonai knows that the thoughts of the wise are worthless. So let no one boast about human beings, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or the present or the future, they all belong to you and belong to the Messiah. And the Messiah belongs to God. 
So, yes, that was a little long, but there's a lot of references there. If you noticed water, 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 and then fire, 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 spirit, and then wisdom, wise, 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 wise. Um, Yeah, that was the point. So the first section of 1 Corinthians 3 covers the metaphor of us being seeds that are growing into plants. This is the elaboration of the reference to spiritual maturity just prior to that. The role of the water is to act as the first ingredient that's needed for the seed to turn into a plant. The water of baptism is typically the first ingredient introduced to a new Christian. Likely there is a suggestion of baptism when Paul and Apollos are mentioned, as in, some of you are baptized by me and others by Apollos, and these are directly said in other places. This symbolism extends to much of God's creation as well. The water of the planet was the first ingredient in existence at the beginning of creation, and all life needs it to survive. A human embryo needs the water of the womb to grow into a more self-sufficient body. Water is the starting point for most aspects of physical and spiritual life. The next metaphor compares us humans to buildings. Some are built well, some are well-built, while others are not. Some are held in respect as temples, while others are common. The true assessment of an individual comes through fire. The fire of judgment and refinement will hit, and the quality of the structure will be revealed in its wake. Sound familiar? The final days? And there was a reference there uh, where Paul says, I believe it's Paul, um, the day will disclose it when he's talking about uh, being tested by fire. Day there is capitalized day, and it is talking about the judgment day very directly. So when... Uh, everything is revealed, it will happen through fire. And again, that reference to Judgment Day, the final day. We are to be the city on the hill, the light that shines for all to see, the temple arrayed in precious stones. The fire will not destroy us, but will rather purify us and give off light. Now, uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Whoever ensnares one of these little ones who trusts in me, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. If your hand makes you sin, cut it off. Better that you should be maimed but obtain eternal life rather than keep both hands and go to hell, to unquenchable fire. And if your foot makes you sin, cut it off. Better that you should be lame but but obtain eternal life rather than keep both feet and be thrown into the fires of hell. And if your eye makes you sin, pluck it out. Better that you should be one-eyed, but enter the kingdom of God, rather than keep both eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Indeed, everyone is going to be salted with fire. Salt is excellent, but if it loses its saltiness, how will you season it? So have salt in yourselves, that is, be at peace with each other. So, yes, a very direct reference here, but uh, this time there is this direct connection to fire and the fires of purification, the fire of Judgment Day, as well as purification, and that tie in very directly to salt, um, that everyone is going to be salted with fire. Salt is excellent, but if it loses its saltiness, yes, all that should sound very familiar. Now... The next uh, set of verses to pair with this would be Leviticus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. 
No grain offering that you bring to Adonai is made with leaven, because you are not to cause any leaven or honey to go up and smoke as an offering made by fire to Adonai. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring these to Adonai, but they are not to be brought up onto the altar to make a fragrant aroma. You are to season every grain offering of yours with salt. Do not omit from your grain offering the salt of the covenant with your God, but offer salt with all your offerings. And I had mentioned uh, in the previous episode about salt and covenants and salt and making deals. Now, this fire of judgment will come to us all, the one referenced in the Mark verse, and we'll talk about the fire with the offering as well. But the point is that we will all experience this fire, the wicked and the righteous alike. Just as the grain offering was to contain no leaven, the Christian should contain no components of their being that make them sin, as is indicated by the First Corinthians verses in saying, If it is burned up, he will have to bear the loss. He will still escape with his life, but it will be like escaping through a fire. So there is also fire that comes in the form of testing, trials, and tribulations, purification reference. There is no reference to the second death here, but rather a clear statement that the individual referred to will go on living. So again, this is not talking about the uh, punishment fire of hell. This is talking about something different. These are fires that come during our earthly lives. It says everyone is going to be salted with fire. The grain offering was to always be accompanied by salt. Likewise, since we are referred to as living sacrifices, our salt addition will be fire. This is fire in the form of the spirit and in the form of testing. To be acceptable as an offering to God, we must be pure and salted. The Mark 9 passage explains that to be salty means to be at peace with one another. Said differently, we are to love God and love our neighbor. In doing so, we are considered salted, and when the fire comes, we will not lose our saltiness or be shown to be saltless, but rather we will be accepted and purified. And if you get the idea from the salt plates that we truly still have our saltiness as this salt plate, and we have the fire of the Spirit, and we are growing the kingdom of God and rolling that ball, getting that ball rolling. God is using us to do that in purifying the world. Um, All of that makes sense as well. The final section of 1 Corinthians 3 brings up wisdom. Now, as mentioned earlier, salt was at times used as a symbol for wisdom. There is also a comparison between the wisdom of the world and true wisdom, which is similar to the comparison in other verses between those who have no salt and those who do. You know, true wisdom, no wisdom. As is said in the final verse, we belong to the Messiah and the Messiah to God. We love God and love our neighbor. We follow God's ways with true wisdom and pure extremities as living sacrifices existing with the fire of the Spirit, but not consumed by it in punishment. We are rather empowered and purified, shining to all as an example of an acceptable life for God, a living sacrifice. I have a few more verses to read here, and then we can talk about those a little bit too. So to begin with, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Look, I am sending my messenger to clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
Yes, the messenger of the covenant in whom you take such delight. Look, here he comes, says Adonai Zavaot. But who can endure the day when he comes? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, like the soap maker's lie. He will sit, testing and purifying the silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refining them like gold and silver, so that they can bring offerings to Adonai uprightly. Then Malachi chapter 4, the next chapter, verses 1 through 6. For the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the proud and evildoers will be stubble, that the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says Adonai Zavaot, and leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will break out leaping like calves released from the stall. You will trample the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I take action, says Adonai Zavot. Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, which I enjoined on him at Horeb, laws and rulings for all Israel. Look, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with complete destruction. And finally, Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Elisha, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John, and his raiment of camel's hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the roots of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So, as you could probably tell, that last one was King James, not the complete Jewish Bible version. I believe that one had some uh, lots of things in it that were untranslated in Hebrew and seemed to be a little much, so I went back to the King James on that one. But uh, as you could probably also tell, the Matthew verse is uh, directly linked to the verses in Malachi, talking about that one that will come before 
the son of righteousness, and then, yes, we get John the Baptist, and talking about some of the same things, about fire, these kinds of things. And with this, we see again the interplay between water and fire with the separation of true believers from the false believers. So basically the salty from the unsalty. This is both in reference to the final judgment and to the present world. It's both at once, both and. The religious leaders, which would be the Sadducees and Pharisees that came to John the Baptist, they're contrasted with those coming to John out of true repentance, just as those accepted by God at the final judgment are contrasted with those who are burned up. John is baptizing with water, but is promising fire to come in the form of both purification and purge. So in between the two is the framework for discernment, an assessment of the fruit produced. And he's talking about the fruit of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. This is where the meaning of the rest of the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount reside, as well as much of the rest of the Bible. It's this in-between period, these in-between things. Things began with water, and they end in fire. They began with the depths and end in light. We begin with baptism and end with judgment. In between is life, a life defined by the fruit it produces. So this is uh, basically a framework for, for life, for us, for our lives and what we are to do. We are to produce good fruit, to be good salt and good light, both beneficial for the rest of the world and to the spreading of God's kingdom. And that's what John the Baptist, as well as Yeshua, both came preaching. It's said in the Bible that they came preaching repentance and the kingdom of God. So um, if you want to go with their main topics, you have repentance, you have kingdom of God, and you have the corruption of the establishment. Those are the main things that John the Baptist and Yeshua were both preaching. Those are their key points. So for us, we are to preserve as a small remnant God's teaching during our lives in the in-between time. God will wash and purify. This could be the washing away of guilt or the washing away of evil, as was the flood. It could be the purifying fire of the Holy Spirit or the burning away in judgment. Both are this role of purification and fire. We are to be the result of God's work. We are what is left after the water is evaporated by fire. We are the salt. We enable the fire of God's oven, creating both light and participating in the fires of purification and judgment. And so, therefore, we shine brightly with the light of the fire within us, shining like gold purified of all impurities by fire and brightly reflecting the light of this fire, which would be the fire of God, the light of God, and the purification of gold and silver is that reference from Malachi there. As we preach God's washing of sins, we are the remnant that preserves his message and seasons the world. That's our role, uh, one of our roles as salt. The power and purification of our baptism of fire shines bright as a beacon, as an example, enlightenment, and a guide for the world. We are the city on the hill. We are the uh, light set upon the table. We are in the world, but not a part of it. We live under its systems, but are not to promote them. We submit even to corrupt authorities, but we do not support them. Our ways are not the ways of the world. Our ways are not their ways. Our allegiance is to truth from God, not to anything else. 
So to bring that point home, let's go over a few more verses from the New Testament. We have John 15, verses 16 through 19. You did not choose me, I chose you, and I have commissioned you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask from the Father in my name, he may give you. This is what I command you, keep loving each other. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world would have loved its own. But because you do not belong to the world, on the contrary, I have picked you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Then a few chapters later, John seventeen fourteen through 19. I have given them your word, and the world hated them, because they do not belong to the world, just as I myself do not belong to the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Set them apart for holiness by means of the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. On their behalf, I am setting myself apart for holiness, so that they too may be set apart for holiness by means of the truth. So if you didn't figure out, that's Yeshua praying to God the Father. Then 1 John 15 through 17 Do not love the world or the things of the world. If someone loves the world, then love for the Father is not in him. Because all the things of the world, the desires of the old nature, the desires of the eyes, and the pretensions of life are not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does God's will remains forever. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I exhort you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourselves as a sacrifice, living and set apart for God. This will please him. It is the logical temple worship for you. In other words, do not let yourselves be conformed to the standards of this present world. Instead, keep letting yourselves be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you will know what God wants and agree that what he wants is good, satisfying, and able to succeed. Then we'll wrap it up back in John, this time chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, and then verses 19 through 21. Nicodemus said to him, How can a grown man be born? Can he go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? Yeshua answered, Yes, indeed, I tell you that unless a person is born from water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born from the flesh is flesh, and what is born from the Spirit is spirit. Stop being amazed at my telling you that you must be born again from above. The wind blows where it wants to, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. That's how it is with everyone who has been born from the Spirit. Now, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their actions were wicked. For everyone who does evil things hates the light and avoids it, so that his actions won't be exposed. But everyone who does what is true comes to the light, so that all may see that his actions are accomplished through God. Okay, so, we are not a part of the world systems. We are something new and differentiated. We reveal the evils and corruptions of the world with light. That's one of our roles as being the light. Ours is the kingdom of light, a kingdom with a spiritual origin. As Yeshua says, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of man is the kingdom of darkness. 
with spiritual influence of a different nature and source. As we end our lives of darkness and become one with light, this must include a birth of both water and spirit. We are born into this world as flesh, carried to term in the darkness of the waters of our mother's womb. We emerge upon birth into light. This is our earthly material birth. In order to enter the kingdom of God, we must also be born from the spirit. This follows a similar process, one of beginning in darkness and washed in the waters of baptism. We are then birthed into the light of the kingdom of God through the fire of the spirit and the enlightenment of the light of the world. So this is a very similar process. And this is what Yeshua is talking about, about being born again and this being a spiritual matter. This has always been our role as humanity. God created both the heavens and the earth for mankind. There was a physical, material world, and there was a spiritual, immaterial world. Our role was to be the bridge between the two. We were to apply the meaning to the material, to unite God's will and truth with the realities of the physical, material world. Both the physical and the spiritual were equally real, but they are separated, and by definition, different from each other. If we are only born of the physical world into the kingdom of man, we are not fulfilling this role of bringing the two together. We are not the in-between if we are solely in one. Those in this camp may even be bringing the physical under the umbrella of a different spiritual force. It is said that uh, this world is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, by the adversary. And uh, yeah, I've read many verses on that before. No point in getting into them again. But those of us who have been born of both spirit and water, through both water and fire, are truly connecting the physical and spiritual aspects of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 5, what we've been going over for this whole time, it is said that we are salt and light. We are either effective and useful for flavoring, preserving, kindling, sacrifice, and leading, or we are in many ways useless or even worse than useless, trampled underfoot and killing off all the life around us. We are either a beacon and light to all, or we are a wasted resource, an example of folly and foolishness. We're filtered through a basket of the world's ways and wisdoms while hiding God's truth and revelation. In order to stay salty and to shine brightly for all to see, we can't be a part of an evil and corrupt system namely the state or the kingdom of man. One might include aspects of the corporate world here as well, or the culture or any of these things. All of these things fall under the umbrella of the world, of the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man is not just one organization, one government, one ideology. The kingdom of man is an inclusive term for anything outside of the kingdom of God. Those are the two camps. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of light. It is ruled by love. Our lives should be love. And in being such, we are performing all of the functions of salt and light through water and fire. So when we are looking into how is this world divided? How is it differentiated? What are the options here? If you look at the Didache, that gives some good examples as well, where you have the path of life and the path of death. And then oftentimes in uh, the New Testament, you have this laid out as light versus darkness. 
Oftentimes in the epistles, you have uh, the world being used as the term, and we are, as Christians, not part of the world. We leave the world behind, and we become one with the church or the kingdom of God. And so this is the key. This is the crux of everything. And uh, not only is it one camp or the other, but these camps have definitions, they have attributes, they have characteristics, and depending on which camp we're in, which one we are focusing on, that is the fruit we will have. And it's not necessarily just what you say your allegiance is to, it is more what fruit do you produce. Again, going back to John the Baptist, him talking about that, it's what is the fruit that is coming from your life? when people see you, when they hear you, when you assess the effect of your life on others and the world around you, what is going to be seen? What is there? What is the direct objective reality of the fruit of your life? And that is what defines which camp you're in, whether it's light or darkness, whether it is death or life, whether it is the kingdom of man or kingdom of God because they are so different, because they are so differentiated, uh, that is something that can be seen straight from fruit. And unfortunately, uh, that does not always match up with what someone says. Uh, Neither does it always match up with what someone thinks. They may think they're a part of one camp, but when you look at the fruit, when you assess by the fruit, you define by the fruit, you define by the characteristics of one kingdom or the other, you might see that it is something different. Which is very unfortunate. However, when you see that someone is a part of the kingdom of man, that someone is walking in darkness, that someone is there, there is a path for them. That is not the end. There is the purification of water. There is the purification of fire. There is baptism. There is the Holy Spirit. There is surrendering and repenting. There is joining the kingdom of God and exiting the corrupt establishment. Again, the three topics that John the Baptist and Yeshua both came preaching over and over and over again. That is the role. That is the path. That is the framework. And that's what we have to look forward to for all of those who are not currently a part of the kingdom of God. So that's going to wrap us up for today's episode. The next week, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're getting out of salt and light and water and fire and all of these things and moving into the next few verses that start getting into the law. And that's a very interesting topic that uh, many people take many different ways. And so we'll dig into that and see where that takes us and go from there. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you especially to those on Patreon and Subscribestar that are giving financially to help support the show and pay for all the hosting fees and those kinds of things. Greatly appreciate that. And if anybody has any questions or concerns, comments, feedback, anything at all, love to hear from you. The best way would be via email. That would be ourfoundations at protonmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at foundationspc. And there's probably other places. Uh, I guess the website, there's uh, ourfoundations.podbean.com. And all of this can be found in the show notes. So feel free to reference that and take it wherever you need it. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for all your support of all kinds. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.